Well, again, here we are in chapter 14. This is our third time in this text. We are in what is commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, The information that's found here in the Gospel of John is only found in the Gospel of John. He's the only one that records it. As I've told you, it's Thursday night. We're just a few hours before uh, the Lord is going to be crucified, and he knows that. And he knows he's going to depart, and uh, uh, his departure is at hand, the time of his departure. And he knows he's going back to the Father. He's revealed to his uh, followers, uh, his disciples, that one of them is going to betray him. He has said that Peter is going to deny him and all the rest of the men will forsake him and flee. He's repeatedly told them that he's going to be condemned to death, delivered up to the Gentiles, mocked, scourged, and then killed by way of crucifixion. But the disciples can't process what he's saying. They can't bear to hear the reality of what's about to happen to their dear friend. Again, he has told them he's going to leave and where he's going they can't follow. So they are troubled in spirit. They're anxious. They are in despair. They're fearful. And out of love for them, Christ is trying to encourage their hearts. Now, as I told you last time, the week, this is Thursday night, the week started off with a, a, on a resounding high note. When Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, what is known as the triumphal entry, everyone was shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. So messianic expectations were at an all-time high. But now Jesus says here on Thursday he's about to leave them. And these men have given up everything they own, everything they have possessed to follow him. And in reality, the world's kind of crashing down around them. All of their hopes, all of their ambitions, all of their, all of their dreams. And so the Lord is really giving comfort to troubled hearts. And he is encouraging them to stop being afraid. Stop being fearful. Don't be anxious. Trust God, trust me, trust Christ, and believe what God's word says. Because the truth for the disciples here in the context of this situation is true not only for them, but it's truths for us. Truth that has to be, must be applied into our own lives. Because the only way that any of us in the room can have any kind of peace in a troubled world in which we live is if we clearly have our focus on the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the answer. To have our focus clearly on the person of Jesus Christ and to listen to what he says. And that's what Christ is encouraging his uh, disciples to do here in verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I told you again, it's really stop being. He knew their hearts were troubled. So he's saying, stop. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop letting your heart be fearful. Because Christ wants his followers to have peace. And the only way that we can have peace, uh, again, is if we have our focus clearly on the person of Jesus Christ, because he alone provides the comfort that we need Uh, for a troubled heart in a fallen world. And as we work our way through the text, uh, we're going to see how the Lord is providing for his disciples. He always has, but he's really providing for them now, and then in some sense providing for them in advance because he knows what's coming. Uh, What you're starting to see here really is the care of Christ for them because there's going to come a transfer, a transfer. Uh, He's the one who's walked with them for the last three years or so. He's the one that has cared for them. He's the one who's provided for all of their needs. But he's about to depart. And in his departure, he's going to transfer their care, if you will, to the Father. And then he's going to promise to send them the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who will indeed be their helper, the one who will live with them and walk with them and encourage them in righteousness and holiness. So the emphasis here at the beginning is not to be fearful, but to trust Christ. Keep your focus on Christ. Listen to what he says, believe upon him, 
in his presence and believe upon him even, even in his absence as he's again about to depart from them. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So that's point number one, if you will. There's hope and comfort by trusting Christ. Hope and comfort in trusting Christ. Secondly, there's comfort that comes by trusting Christ's preparation and trusting Christ's promise. So comfort comes by trusting Christ's preparation and trusting his promise. Verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Uh, The authorized version says mansions. Uh, I told you it's really abidings. It's probably the most literal idea. Abidings. Rooms, I think the NIV says. That's not bad. Rooms. In my father's house. Well, where's the father's house? Well, it's just another name really for heaven. Uh, There are many dwelling places in heaven. The place that God lives where uh, God resides. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Again, he's just a way of saying, look, this is the absolute truth. And where I go, or I'm going to go and prepare, or I'm going to go and make ready a place for you. So again, out of love for the disciples, the Lord's trying to encourage their hearts. Although that he may be leaving, he's leaving for a purpose. He's going to make preparation for them in order them to, in order to bring them into his presence, where he is with the Father uh, in heaven. Again, a place of joy, a place of a gladness, a place of permanence, a, a place of uninterrupted beauty, a, a place of holiness where God resides. And he is assuring them. He's giving them comfort. He's telling them and us that full provision has been made for them for their comfort. Full provision has been made for us, our comfort, our eternal happiness in heaven. And then the relationship that they have now with Christ is never going to end. That Christ is going to provide for them. And there's room for everyone who wants to come. Room for all whom God has called to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. For I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I told you it's a wonderful promise that no matter what happens next, he's reassuring them that it's not going to derail their hope of eternity with him. He knows what's coming, they don't. He's trying to prepare their hearts, he's trying to assure them. No matter what happens next, that will not derail the hope that you have of eternity with Christ. And we can take that to our level, right? No matter what happens in this crazy world, Satan is not in charge of this world. Satan and his demons are not in charge. All of the evil men of this world and the evil system is not in charge of this world. Jesus Christ is, amen? God is. God sits on his throne. God is sovereign. God is working and orchestrating all the events in time, using even the wickedness of men to bring about his exaltation and the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where human history is headed. Human history is not headed to some man-made natural, uh, national disaster or international disaster and cataclysm and some kind of apocalyptic movie, and we don't know what to do. Human history is headed toward the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and judgment will come along the way for those who reject God's goodness through the person of Jesus Christ. But God is in the process of saving his own. So you can go to bed at night, turn a light off, and do what? Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Don't worry. Let not your heart be troubled. And again, when Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I told you, it's really, uh, I will come again. It's really in the present tense. So it's really, it, it literally is in the idea of I'm coming. I'm already coming. He hasn't left, but he's already coming. He's coming again. I'm going to receive you to myself to where I am. You may be with me also. Uh, again, it's a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a uh, reassurance for these guys who are really in a real world situation, frightened. They're anxious. Jesus is leaving. He's making a promise to them. 
that he's going to personally return and get them, receive them to himself, bring them back to where he is, and then bring them into the Father's house for all of eternity. And again, it's a tremendous truth. Now, I told you that phrase, I will come and receive you to myself, that phrase really is an eschatological statement, and it really is, it fits nowhere else uh, in, in uh, eschatology, except it's a reference to the rapture of the church. And we kind of worked through that very in a high level last time. We read out of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo means snatched away. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We who are alive and remain together shall be caught up together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That's the rapture. And at the rapture of the church, Christ takes his own from earth to heaven. He rescues them. He rescues his beloved. Because Christ has not, God has not destined his people for wrath. Rather, he delivers them from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. God delivers his own from the wrath to come. At the second coming, which is proper, the, the proper second coming... That's when Christ comes and he pours out his wrath upon the unbelieving world. That's when he comes and destroys utterly all of his enemies and establishes an earthly kingdom. And everyone in heaven will come with him to the earth. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he is sat upon it. It's called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are aflame with fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword that he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And his, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Just in case you're wondering who this person is, the word, the King of kings and Lord of lords is Jesus Christ. And no one is coming from the earth to heaven at the second coming. Christ is coming to conquer. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be with me also. Again, again, it's really the rapture of the church. And the hope of the church has always been the imminent return of Christ, the fact that Christ could come at any moment for his people. And when he comes, we'll be with him forever. As I said last time, it's a doctrine that's really fallen on hard times because people don't teach it very much. But nevertheless, it's what the, the Bible teaches clearly in the scripture, the hope of the church, the soon return of Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Arthur Pink says this, he says, Here then is the divine specific for heart trouble. Here indeed is precious consolation for one groaning in the world of sin. First, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the assurance that the Father's house is on high and it will be our eternal home. Third, uh, the realization that the, Savior has, uh, that the Savior has done and is doing everything necessary to secure us a welcome there and a fit home for our reception. Fourth, he says, the blessed hope that he is coming in person to receive us to himself. And finally, number five, the precious promise that we are to be with him forever. Then he has this, but, and mark it well, he says, 
It is only in proportion as we are troubled by his absence or our absence from him that we shall be comforted and cheered by these precious words. Here is solid ground for consolation and conclusive arguments against despondency and disquietude in the present path of service and suffering. The Savior lives and loves and cares for us. He is active in promoting our interests, and when God's time arrives, he shall receive us unto himself. We say here all of the time, we need to keep looking up where our hope comes from. Right? We need to be so caught up with the events and the affairs of the day. Our hope is not in politics or politicians. Our hope is in Christ. And he's promised to come again. Amen? And the only proportion, the, the promises of God only are as good as we are troubled by his absence. My goodness, there's nothing in this world that should cause our hearts to long for anything here. Every single morning we should get up with an attitude, Lord, help me to honor you this day, and Lord, secondly, come. Lord Jesus, come. Because I want to be with you. Amen? I want to be with you. There's nothing this world has for us. So this is hope for the troubled heart. It's looking on Christ. Hope for the troubled heart comes by trusting in Christ, believing upon him. Secondly, it comes by trusting Christ's preparation, his promise. And thirdly, comfort comes to the troubled heart by trusting in his proclamation. Trusting in his proclamation. Again, in the context, he's trying to encourage his disciples' hearts. He's telling them, look, I'm going, but one day I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me. Now, he previously had told them that he was departing, and he actually told them where he was going. Chapter 7 of John, verse 33, he tells them where he's going. He says, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Now, again, they're having a hard time computing all of this, right? They, they understand to a point, but not completely. They don't have complete clarity. And again, you can't be too hard on them because we are looking back through 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of understanding, and they're living in the context of the time <clears throat> that, again, they're the night before the Lord's going to be crucified. So they have a certain understanding. They're kind of shaking their heads, and then they're going, I, I don't know what you know, what you're talking about. You go, how do I know that? Because I read the next verse, just in case you know where I got that from. The next verse tells me. They don't have a complete clarity. Verse 4, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, you've got to love Thomas, right? He's an honest guy. And he has the courage to step up and say what everybody else in the room has to be thinking. Well, Lord, you told us you're going away. Yeah, I know you told us you're going back to the Father. You told us you're going to die. You also told us that where you're going, we can't follow you. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Lord, we don't know what happens after you die. Our knowledge stops at death. How can we go to the Father unless we also die? How do we get to the Father once, once you're gone and, and once you die? That's a really good question. How do we get there? And Jesus responds with a profound statement, probably one of the most familiar portions of text for sure in John and maybe all of the Bible, verse 6. Jesus said to them, or Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Profound statement. 
a profound statement on one hand. It's very simple as what he is saying. On the other hand, the depth of what he's saying, we could probably spend several times together just trying to unpack part of it. Have you ever been lost? And then you stop and you ask somebody for directions. And the directions that people give you are so confusing, you can't possibly follow them. You know, at the big bush in the corner and the big tree that's painted white and the left thing where there's a hubcap and you're just going, what are you talking about? Now, this is probably only for women because there's not a man in the room who's lost would ever ask directions. So this is probably only for the women. But let's just say you were lost and you actually asked somebody for questions and they or directions and they give you directions that you can't follow. But Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says in the most simplistic way, follow me, I'll take you there. Follow me, I'll take you there. I'll literally take you to the Father's presence. Don't worry. Because I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now this is the sixth of seven I am statements by Christ in the book of John. First one is in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Second one is John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 10.7, Jesus says, I am the door. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here, John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The seventh one is coming. It's in John chapter 15, verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, what's notable about all of these I am statements is that Jesus uses a definite article. He uses the definite article, the, T-H-E, rather than an indefinite article, a. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life, not not a bread of life. I am the bread of life. The bread of life, the only one who's the source of satisfaction for the hunger of the soul. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's saying he's the only God who can lead mankind out of darkness into the light of God. When Jesus said, I am the door, he was saying that it is through him alone that a person can enter into the fold of God. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he again, he is saying that he alone is the one who will lay down his life for the sheep. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's making the claim to be the conqueror, or the conqueror over all, even death. A claim that he will back up in chapter 11 that he's already backed up in our studies. Chapter 11, verse 43 and 44, when he raises Lazarus from the dead and when he raises himself from the dead coming up in the text. I am the resurrection and the life. So all these claims that Jesus is making are radically exclusive statements. Asserting that he and he alone is the answer. That he and he alone can save us from sin. And he and he alone can bring us into God's presence. And he and he alone is the one who can grant us eternal life. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. As one commentator has said, Jesus is making an exclusive claim that he alone is the way. Because he alone is the truth about God. Because he alone is the one who possesses the life of God. And again, that's the entire purpose of John's gospel, to expose to us truth, the reality, to lead people to faith in Christ and understanding of true salvation, John 20 and 31. These things, John says, have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. 
Now, the statement that Christ makes here in John chapter 14, verse 6, that really exposes the world's hatred to Christianity and the world's hatred to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, 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 the crux of the issue, the, the, the very issue of what the world hates is the person of Christ. They hate him. They hate what he says. They hate the exclusive claims that he makes. That he is the Lord and he is the only Savior of mankind. Again, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, one critic of Christianity that I read this week expresses probably thoughts that are, the thoughts that are probably common of many when he says this. He says, Christians are uncompromising, ornery, I really think he meant argumentative, militant, rigorous, uh, arrogant, and invincibly self-righteous. As Christianity claims about the unique truth of Jesus Christ, and those claims have aroused no end of opposition from Jews, pagans, Muslims, communists, humanists, atheists for the past 2,000 years. Probably accurate. We are uncompromising. One of the tenets of postmodernism, one of the tenets of postmodern unbelievers is their ability to grant tolerance to every viewpoint and every religion except one, of course, that would be biblical Christianity. And again, the gospel message, the words of Christ himself, again, he's the only one. He alone is the only way to the Father. He alone is the only means of salvation, the only route to God. Therefore, what he's saying in making those exclusive claims is that every other religion or every other religious system are false routes to God. They are they're dead ends, as it were. So again, Jesus is making an exclusive claim to be the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father's presence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, the world may hate these claims that Christ has made, but we who know him, we have to hold on to them. And we have to hold on to them dearly. And we have to never surrender them. You say, well, why in the world would we do that? Nobody who calls himself a believer would ever do that. Oh, my dear friend, that's not true. There are many people out there who claim the name of Christ who promote various versions of what I would put into this theological category of called the wider mercy theology. Many people who claim the, night, the name of Christ, who promote various versions of what is known as a wider mercy theology, which basically says there are many ways and many paths to God. Some of them would go even as far as saying you don't even have to hear the gospel. But you can still come to salvation. You can still come to to faith in Christ, have your sins forgiven. But that's not true biblically. I read somewhere it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And you have some conservative, quote-unquote, some evangelical, quote-unquote, pastors, quote-unquote, theologians, quote-unquote. Some of them who are nationally known who promote this wider mercy kind of an idea. There's a number of them that not only promote this wider mercy idea, but on the same time they openly promote ecumenism, which is really the blending 
uh, the unity and the blending of a lot of different religious systems. Now, I know that a lot of you in the room aren't old enough. Some of you are, but not all of you in the room aren't even old enough to remember what I'm about to tell you. But I think you saw the spirit of ecumenism rise to a level that we've never seen it in this country before in response to the events that were coming up on the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And the events of September 11th, uh, 2001, were in and of themselves shocking and horrific and tragic. But as awful as that day was, I believe the most shocking, the more shocking, the more infamous day that happened around that time was three days later. That was September 14th. Because it was on that day that a new religion, a new national religion, was born here in America. A religion that did indeed blur the lines, all the lines between all the religions of the world. And it was a religion that has an did at that time and has continued to lift the heights of the spirit of ecumenism. Uh, again, the effects we are dealing with some 20 years down the road. If you're old enough to remember those events, you remember three days later. At least it's in your mind there someplace, right? It was on that day, September 14, 2001, there was a national day of prayer and remembrance. And on that day, you had Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and Roman Catholics and Protestants. And they all came together and they all dropped any pretense of any kind of doctrinal differences between the groups. And they all came together and they all sang and they held hands and they prayed and they offered homilies to quote-unquote God, whoever he or she might be. And you can address this God in this ecumenical religion by any name you desire. You can address the deity as Allah. You can address him as the great spirit or the God of the ages. You might call him Sophia or her Sophia or whatever you want. You can call him just a generic God. You can call him the ascended master. But the one thing that you will not call him, the one thing that is unacceptable, is to call him the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the world and the world religions, the world religious systems will put up with a blurring of the lines and a setting aside of doctrinal differences for the sake of unity up to that point. The one thing they will not tolerate is they won't tolerate the words of Christ who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The world and the world religious systems will not accept that statement. But that's the truth. Because the truth is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone. And that's why Paul stood up and said, Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and to the Greek. That's why he said, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Peter said, Acts 4 and 12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So in spite of the world's hatreds for these truths, in spite of the compromise of false teachers, and there are many, we must never surrender the truth. We must never be ashamed of the exclusive claims of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how offensive they might be to anyone around us. Because when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, that's true truth. That's true truth. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, 
For not only is John 14.6 true, but it offers the only real answer to the great needs of the world. Man's tragic plight is that we are alienated from God, ignorant of truth, and condemned to both physical and spiritual death. Jesus has come to the answer uh, as the answer of sin's dreadful predicament. He is the way for sinners to be reconciled to God, the truth that God has revealed to correct their ignorance, and the life we need to regenerate us from the power of death. That's a good statement. Jesus Christ is the only answer. Before sin entered the world and, and Adam fell, Adam, mankind, enjoyed a relationship with God. Uh, he had communion with his maker. He knew him personally, possessed spiritual life. But when mankind disobeyed, when he fell, his relationship with God was severed. And every man after Adam, every man, every sinner following in the footsteps of their father Adam is in that same separated, severed position in need of reconciliation, in need of illumination, in need of uh, regeneration. And it's the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that perfectly meets all those needs. The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only way to the Father. He's the only way that truth is understood because he's truth incarnate. And again, he's the only source of spiritual life for those who believe upon him. So let's just stop for a moment and think a little bit deeper on this, uh, this statement that Christ has just made here. And again, this is by no means in depth. What did he say or what did he mean when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? Again, when he makes that first claim, I am the way, it's a claim of exclusivity, and it's a, an exclusive claim. He says, I'm the path. I'm the starting point. How, how does a man find his way to God? Jesus says, I am the way. Man who's utterly ruined by sin, man who's condemned before a holy God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of, the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks for God. Romans 3. How does a man find his way to God? Jesus says, I am the way. How can men who are dead in trespasses and sins and utterly condemned, utterly corrupt, ever get their way back to God, ever be reconciled in the relationship with God? Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the only one that spans the distance between God and the sinner because there's nothing that man can do on his own. Arthur Pink says, Man would fain manufacture a ladder of his own, and by means of his resolutions and reformations, his prayers and his tears climb up to God. But that is impossible. That is the way which seemeth right to a man, but it's in, therefore, uh, are the ways of death, Proverbs fourteen twelve. It is Satan who would keep the exercise uh, sinner on his self-imposed journey to God, What faith needs to lay hold of is the glorious truth that Christ has come all the way down to sinners, the sinner who could not come into God, but God in the person of his Son has come down to sinners. He is the way, the way to the Father, the way to heaven, the way to eternal blessedness. Satan would be very happy for you. You just keep building that ladder. You just try to keep working your way to God by doing all these kinds of good things. And that's the way that seems right to a man, but it's way instant in death, right? I've told you, every world religious system apart from biblical Christianity is some kind of works righteousness. I'm going to do these things or not do these things. I'm going to make some effort to, 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 to get back to God. One of the great lines in that hymn that we sang this morning uh, about the Lord's vicarious death and life. Uh, uh, I cling to Christ. Uh, uh, 
the uh, wrath on sin Christ has done wage uh, uh, sin's wage is paid propitiation one well, what does that mean can't use those big words people don't understand those big words well you need to understand that word the big words for those of you who've been here for a long period of time you know I tell the story that I was in an inner city church one time preaching I mean, I call it like a burnt-out district. There's nothing here. There shouldn't even be people gathered. There's nothing in this place. And there was a dear, faithful man teaching the Bible. And he said, as a 65-year-old crack addict, when I came to understand the word propitiation, it transformed and changed my life because that means that God stood in his place and God the Father poured out his his punishment upon the Lord Jesus Christ who took the wrath. And God the Father sent Christ out of love to stand in that place. And Christ out of love stood in that place. And we understood that God had died for him in Christ. His life was transformed and he was freed from a life of addiction to crack cocaine. And there he is, a faithful man teaching Bible study to little kids, adults. My life has changed because of Christ. That's how reconciliation is, is, is achieved. Through God's kindness through Christ. That's the only way that reconciliation is possible. Because we're all condemned by sin. We're all corrupted by sin. And not only that, we've got God's justice hanging over our head, demanding our punishment uh, for our sin against God. We can't come on our own. We, we can't know God as sinful men and women. In fact, the Bible says we don't even want to know. We don't even want to come. And again, that's the scandal, or at least in part the scandal of the gospel, because the gospel declares the alienation of God and man. It it declares man's hopelessness of ever reconciling himself to God through Christ, through their own efforts. All the world religions say, well, no, no, you can do this. Biblical Christianity says, no. It's only Jesus Christ. He's the way. The gospel says that man is so corrupt, so sinful, so alienated from God, so hopeless because of his sin. It can, he can only be reconciled to God if God himself chooses to act, if God himself chooses to send a Savior, if God himself chooses to send a Savior to come to die in our place for our sin. And that's what God has done through Christ. And that's where reconciliation occurs. That's why Peter stands up and says there's salvation in no one else. I don't know what you've been hearing on the street, but there's salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven, which means no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, except the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. That's why I said back in John chapter 10 that he alone was the door to the sheep, verse 7. Verse 8 of John chapter 10, he said, all others were thieves and robbers. Verse 9 of John chapter 10, he says that salvation is found only through him. If you enter through him, then you'll be saved. I am the way. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7 that the gate is small, the way is narrow. And few find the path to life. Romans chapter 7, 13 to 14. That's the offense of the gospel. The words of Christ. Dogmatically, he's stepping up and saying, apart from him, apart from him there's no hope. The only way that a man can come to God through, is through Christ. And the only way that God can come to a man through Christ is to stop and admit he is a sinner in need of salvation. 
Therefore, that means that a man's going to have to humble himself. He's going to have to seek God's pardon. He's going to have to surrender his claims to self-rule, self-sufficiency at all levels. And the Bible says, apart from God's mercy through Christ, sinful men will not do that. They refuse to do that. Apart from God's mercy in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. And then he said, and the truth. And the truth. Again, when mankind sinned, he cut himself off from the truth. Adam rejected the truth and believed the lies of the devil. And ever since then, mankind has been groping in ignorance and error and in darkness. Romans 1 verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. You see that everywhere across the culture and across the world. Ephesians 4 and 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's all mankind apart from Christ, in darkness. And what mankind desperately needs is a revelation of the truth. In order that man might be saved, and for man to be saved, he has to be enlightened by the revelation of God's word, God's truth. And the fullest expression of God's truth comes through the person of Jesus Christ himself, who actually happens to be truth incarnate, truth in the flesh. Pilate, the Roman governor, missed that completely when he voiced the perplexity, I think, of the multitudes when he asked the question in John 18, 38, what is truth? So blind. Failing to realize that truth is standing right in front of him. Because Jesus Christ is truth. Truth is not philosophy, a philosophy. Truth is a person. And Jesus Christ is the one who reveals God and exposes him to man. That's why Paul in Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why John started out his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. What a tremendous failure on the part of mankind to ignore him. I've said numerous times throughout this study, your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. And the most desperate need of every person is to come to an absolute understanding of who Jesus Christ is. To believe the truth concerning yourself, your standing before God and who Jesus Christ is before you die. Or if you do not, it will guarantee the fact that you'll face God in eternal judgment. Three times in John chapter 8, once in verse 21, twice in verse 24, Jesus warned unbelievers that they would die in their sins. You shall die in your sins, unless they come to a proper understanding of who he is. Unless they believe the truth concerning who he is. John 8, 24, I said to you, therefore to you, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. It really is a statement of deity. I am. God in the flesh. You shall die in your sin unless you believe that I am is a reality. And I would suggest to you that you can't believe too soon. 
the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Because while you have mental competency, while you have life, while you have breath, you have opportunity. But listen to me, and listen to me carefully. The moment you die, it's too late. The second you die, it's too late. Whatever you believe about the person of Jesus Christ at the moment of your death, that truth or that falsehood is what will seal your eternal destiny. So again, the most important issue in your life, you in this front room, you in the back room, you who are watching on on the internet, the most important issue that will affect your life both in time and eternity is what do you think of Jesus Christ? Because your understanding of Jesus Christ determines the, the quality of your life and time and then your eternal destiny. Eternal destiny of your soul, the issue is that important. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. Dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 17, the law was written, was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 3, 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest, having been wrought in God. John 4, 23, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John eight thirty two. you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8 and 40, As for you, speaking to the religious leaders, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. John 8, 44, he says, Therefore, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father, who is a murderer from the beginning, and doesn't stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, speaks of his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, verse 45, But I speak the truth. Yet you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. Every man needs the truth. And there are only two ultimate views concerning life in the universe. Only two. Help you out. If you're confused, you came to a good place. There's only two ultimate views of life in the universe. One is the truth that comes from God through his word and through the revelation of himself through the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's number one. Truth that comes from God, his word, and the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the only other view of life you can have is that which comes from men. And I notice I didn't say it was the truth. That's it. We either submit ourselves to the word of God and the revelation of God found in the Bible through the person of Jesus Christ, or we dismiss what God has to say and we roll the dice, as it were, and base our life, our eternal destiny on our own opinions, on our own ideas, or the opinions and ideas of other men, the speculations, suppositions, the imaginations of other men. That's it. There's only two ways to do life, only two possibilities, only two categories. We either humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the truth of the revelation from God through Christ, or we reject divine revelation. And again, we risk our eternal destiny on what we think or how we think things should be, how other people want us to believe. 
I know people who refuse to believe in God because they're not happy with the way God's running his universe. Oh, far be it from God to start the whole thing and not ask you how to run the whole thing. Which is just another arrogant way to saying, I need to be God. If I were in charge, I wouldn't do it the way you're doing it. It's a condemnation of God. You need the truth. I need the truth. That's why when a man stands in the pulpit and he speaks, he either speaks for God, speaking God's truth, expounding God's word, repeating God's word to God's people, or he stands up and gives his own opinion. There's no middle ground. No middle position. And each of us desperately needs to hear God's truth. We need a revelation from God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by the word of God. Because the problem with men, the supreme problem with men, is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, right? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They choose not to believe the truth. They choose to stand in opposition to the truth, fight against the truth, oppose the truth. Because men are sinful and men are in pride. Sinful men in pride, pride of their own education, pride of their own intellect, pride of their own achievements, makes them, they think, self-sufficient. Modern man and his pride rejects divine revelation. He says he doesn't need God. He has all the truth he needs. All the understanding he needs apart from God and apart from Christ. I would just beg to ask you one question. How in the world is it going? And all you have to do to answer the question is just look around. Here's a country apart from its moorings. Here's a country that has rejected God. And God in his uh, uh, justice has given men exactly what they want. You want a godless, Christless world? Here you go. Have it. Told you it's the wrath of abandonment. Better wake up. Better realize the time in which we're living. Better draw close to Christ. You better understand the truth. Modern man rejects divine revelation. You know what modern man is? He's nothing but an abject fool. That's the devastating position of fallen men. Men who've rejected God's grace. Men who've rejected God's kindness through Christ. Men who've rejected the truth incarnate, truth in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Modern man's a fool. Listen to Pink, Arthur Pink. Listen to the haunting question. What will, what, it's in his commentary, so it says, What will it avail you in hell, dear reader, even though you have mastered all the sciences of men, or have acquired uh, or acquainted with all the events of history, averse in all the languages of mankind, were thoroughly acquainted with the politics of your day, oh, how will you wish then you had read your newspaper less and your Bible more, that with all your getting you had got understanding, that with all your learning you had bowed before him who is the truth. How will it avail you in hell? When you're so prideful of your own learning and your own intellect and you've missed the truth. And listen, all of us, every man has only been given the allotted time that we have to figure it all out. Every man has only been given the allotted time that we have. Our existence. It's kind of cliche-ish, but 
But you've been to a, 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 a graveyard, I'm assuming. Born on this date, died on that date, a little dash line in the middle, that's your life. That's it. You're not even that big a speck on, on the matters of eternity, but that's it. That's all you get. That's your allotted portion. And you have the allotted portion of time to figure it all out. Figure out what is truth, to submit to the truth. Because once you die, then you will know the truth with absolute certainty. And sadly for many people, it's going to be with an absolutely terrifying certainty. What a tragedy it would be to find out only when it's too late, only after you've taken your last breath and stepped into eternity that hell really does exist. That hell is a real, literal, eternal place of conscious torment, a place there will be no hope of ever escaping just as Christ repeatedly warned. Because hell is a place full of sinners who rejected divine truth. Heaven is a place full of sinners who have accepted divine truth, who have humbled themselves under the word of God. Hell is a place full of sinners who have rejected divine truth. They have entrusted their souls to their own fallen human wisdom or the wisdom of other fallen men. And what a horrific a horrifically, eternally sad day it'll be when you realize that you had repeated opportunities not to go to hell, but you rejected him who is the truth. You scorned God's mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you chose not to believe. He warned, he said, unless you believe, you, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins, and you rejected that. You chose, well, he had that little dash, well, he had all breath and life in this world and time. He had the opportunity to investigate the claims of Christ, and you chose to not do that. You chose to live your life and go on with your life as though God didn't exist. You refused God's warning of a coming day of judgment. You rejected the truth, the fact that God eternally punishes sin. You chose to believe the lie that you're not personally accountable to God. Therefore, you believe the lie that you're own, that you, your own God, and you can live your life any way you wanted to and make up the own rules, uh, your own rules for your own life. You chose to reject the truth concerning God's salvation in Jesus Christ. You chose to reject God's mercy through Christ, that again, he's the only way of salvation, and you chose to reject that truth. You chose not to believe. You chose not to accept God's pardon and forgiveness of sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you chose for yourself eternal damnation. Because Jesus Christ says, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And my dear friends, I'm telling you again, that's true truth. That is true truth. And every man is going to have to deal with the truth. And you either humble yourselves and submit to it, or you reject it at hand. And you pay eternally for that error. That's the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. And then he said, and the life. And the life. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death all men are fallen all men are under the curse of sin the power of death apart from Christ spiritually dead Ephesians chapter 2 unable to do anything about our condition unable to do anything about our salvation unable to bring ourselves to life spiritually John says concerning Jesus Christ John 1 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men 
John, thir- John 3, verse 14, Jesus speaking, says, As Moses, was lift- Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ in John 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even, though, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 24 of John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus, John 10 and 10, The thief comes only to kill to steal and destroy, I came that they might have life, and they might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, Jesus Christ is the source of life. He is the source of eternal life for those who believe upon him. Now, while it is true, and it is, that Jesus has provided the way of our reconciliation to God, while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, Romans 5, Second uh, Corinthians five nineteen, he, God was in Christ reconciling the world Himself. Uh, for, uh, Colossians one nineteen, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Verse twenty, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. The death of Christ has reconciled us to God the Father, but, but that's not enough. And although Christ is the truth, and, and through him we're granted a revelation of understanding of the truth, a revelation of God that brings us again into contact with the truth, that's still not enough. We would remain dead spiritually. We would remain morally corrupt. We'd never be able to repent, never able to follow Christ unless we've been granted life. That's why Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again. Can't see the kingdom of God. You need life, a new life. Not, not the one you were born with physically. You need a spiritual life in order to be saved. In order to be forgiven, uh, you have to be regenerated. You have to be made alive spiritually so you can understand the truth and you can believe the truth and you can follow the truth. You have to be made willing to follow the truth, to have a desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we all need life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need life. Ephesians 2, that's what God does through Christ, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards, Christ, towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. We need life. And it's only God through Christ that we find life. It's only Jesus Christ who's the one who has the life we need, the power of life, the power of, uh, of life spiritually, physically. And how does he convey to us that life? It's through his word, isn't it? It's through his word. 
When he uttered those words in John chapter 11, just as a picture of the power of the word of Christ, the life he gives. Remember John chapter 11? Lazarus, he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus has been there for four days. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. The one who's been dead in that tomb for four days comes out under the command of Christ. Because Jesus Christ gave him life to respond to the command. Again, Jesus Christ is life. I am the life. I have the power of life. I'm the one who's defeated death. I'm the the one who calls his own through the gospel. Those who come to him listen. And and when they're called, they listen, they believe, and the way of salvation becomes real to them. Jesus says, John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death to life. Jesus says in John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. When Jesus Christ stood up and he said, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, look, I'm what you need. I'm the person. Therefore, the command of Scripture is to come where? To come to life. Come to Christ. Come to him. Come to him who is the way. Come to him who is the truth. Come to him who is the life. Because look what he adds at the end of verse 6. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. Again, Christ makes this exclusive claim that all other religions, all other religious systems, all other religious leaders are false and liars. Christ says he is the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. Again, that's why Peter says, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, at the end of verse 3, he says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God, one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born in proper time. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Little wonder that these words have caused opposition and hatred from the world, right? Postmodern thinker, religious individuals. There's many paths, many truths. Jesus says, look, that's all a satanic lie. It's all a satanic lie. The writer F.F. Bruce says this. He says, he or Jesus, Jesus is, in fact, the only way by which men and women can come to the Father. There is no other way. If this seems offensively exclusive, let it be borne in mind that the one who makes this claim is the incarnate word, the revealer of the Father. If God has no avenue of communication with mankind apart from his word, mankind has no avenue of approach to God apart from the same word who became flesh, who dwelt among us in order to supply such an avenue of approach. Jesus Christ says, follow me. I'll take you to the Father. So again, 
Jesus says, verse 4, you know the way I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Uh, again, notice Jesus didn't give complicated directions. Uh, he, he didn't draw a map on the back of a napkin. He, he didn't say, go do good things. Go do spiritual work, spiritual things. Verse 6, Jesus said, follow me. I'll make sure you get there. Uh, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in my provision. Believe in my proclamation that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Bold words. Bold words. Spoken by Christ in the context of his literally hour away, soon coming appointment with the cross. Commentator Leon Morris adds this. He says, I am the way, said one, who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth. When the lives of evil people were enjoying a spectacular triumph, I am the life when within a matter of hours his corpse would be placed in a tomb. Pretty bold talk from a man who's going to die on a cross in a few hours. How can he say that? How could he make such a bold claim, such a bold proclamation? And again, it's found in the answer to what I said at the top of the hour. He knows what's coming next. They don't. He knew he was going to go to the cross, but he also knew he would what? Defeat death. He knew that. He knew that he needed to go to the cross, but he'd defeat death, and he knew that that truth would be proclaimed with power throughout the entire world from that moment forward. He knew that multitudes would believe upon him salvifically and follow him, the risen Christ, the one who defeated sin, death, and Satan. And he knew that Christ's followers would eventually be called the way. That's what they were known as, the way. Because they followed him. Who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Only one way to the Father. Only one way to, to be reconciled and to have new life. Only one way to be freed from sin and slavery and darkness and the ignorance of unbelief. Only one way to enter into the Father's dwelling. Only one way to draw near to the Father in heaven through the person of Jesus Christ and through him alone. And again, the call is for everyone to come to him without delay. Come to him immediately without any personal achievements, without any uh, uh, stopping and trying to make yourselves better or any kind of self-improvement. Come now. Immediately. Run to Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The hymn writer Augustus Toplady kind of sums up that call to come. He says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. He says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There's no hope apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he bids you come.